Rick Madison, Rick and Friends, and this uh, this guest. I mean, gosh, I, I don't even know how long I've seen and and hung out with your family. I often show up unannounced at your uh, at your house, which is great. Um, but your mom makes such great butter tarts; like it's just fantastic. Uh, Cassidy Devere, who is now Home Builders Association of BC Presidente. Well, congratulations! Thanks, Rick. Uh, so you were the local president, correct? Yes, I was. So yeah, I did two and a half years as our local president, uh, and then I became uh, BC president in June. What on earth are you doing? Like, <laughs> <laughs> like, but really though, this is just a huge. It's a huge undertaking. Volunteer position. You're already busy. Yes. You're a busy mom. You're a busy uh, owner of a company, and now you take on this. So is it just because? I mean, I, I know you are a go-getter, but is it as much or more than you thought it would be? I think I get just as much out of it as I put into it. I think that um, the construction industry has such a loud voice that needs to be heard. Um, we have been talking for decades about the cost of homes and how much of it is related to the cost of construction um, and all of the expenses that... Um, are paid through that process, through the process of building, which ultimately always get passed on to the end user. Um, and so it's so uh, enjoyable for me to be able to sit in meetings with ministers um, and go to Ottawa and speak uh, with our national team there um, and discuss all the issues that we're facing across Canada um, and how the uh, residential construction industry has a part to play in that. So it's interesting, too, because some people would just, uh, I don't know, block a bridge or do something really ineffectual to get their voice heard. But you decide, OK, I'm not pleased with the direction, so I'm actually going to be part of this solution by by really advocating and in using the proper channels. Like I, it, it seems to me like this would be a much more effective means than some other protests you could have. Absolutely. I think anytime any policy comes out, um, it's all about finding middle ground. You're never going to please everybody. Um, you have to understand the pain points of everybody um, and then find the middle ground to make the best decisions for everybody. Um, a lot of people, when they're advocating, ask for money. Everyone asks for money. Everyone says, can we get more funding for this? Can we get more funding for that? Uh, the government has a limited amount of funding. Um, and so it's always about coming up with ideas that might not cost them any money at all, um, but might remove some barriers that would reduce the cost on the other end. So we'll dive into a whole bunch of issues, but how long have you been uh, the BC president? I've been BC president since June. Since June, okay. Yeah, and it's just a one-year term. And you've already had a chance to meet with ministers and... Yeah, yeah, I've met with Minister Eby. Um, I met him actually in June uh, before he uh, announced uh, becoming the race for leadership before uh, Mr. Horgan stepped down. Um, I've met him uh, multiple times. I've also met Selena Robinson a few times. I've met her as finance minister and then as well when she was the former housing minister. Are they on your speed dial? <laughs> Not my speed dial, but with our BC office, yes. Uh, they're very responsive, um, and our staff meet with their staff uh, quite frequently. Um, so it's very uh, open uh, communication, and I um, met with Mr. Eby with about uh, four other people earlier uh, in the summer, and he said that there are big announcements coming this fall, which he has said in the news as well. So it will be exciting to uh, to find out what happens. That's what you call a teaser. Yeah. <laughs> So it would be advantageous for you to be running 
uh, a home building company and then step into this position as far as Kelowna is concerned and then to BC. Would you, it seems like that was a, a proper path because you learn as you go and, and you get to feel the pain points uh, as a home builder. Absolutely. Like, yeah, absolutely. It's it's uh, not required that our presidents be builders, um, but most of the work um, that's involved requires a very deep understanding of what we are dealing with on a daily basis. So, um, yeah, it's very important. And and I would imagine it it gives you a little bit and and sorry, but it gives you respect in the room. Like, I mean, you've you thank you. Well, it, well, it does because you've you know exactly what is involved. Uh, you know the internals of a house. It's and and nobody can really say, well, you you don't know what we're dealing with because you actually have walked more than a mile in those shoes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I I think the the other part of your position is going to be that policy and mm-hmm. and really being able to figure out what channels, what people, and how am I going to pursue our direction and push it forward within the game that is politics is is that kind of what you're discovering or, or know about i guess yeah the for sure the bulk of the work i'll be doing is in policy um policy um within bc and as well nationally so bringing our issues from bc to the national um office and our national office meets with uh a lot with both the conservatives and the liberals uh, in ottawa quite frequently. So uh, it's really interesting to actually see things that we advocate for be changed across Canada. So it's really cool. So I was reading in the news about how there was, uh, as far as EB was concerned, our housing minister was talking about how there's a bottleneck at the municipal level. And the BC government was looking to to really hope streamline that and, and make approvals quicker and that kind of thing. From your position, which is you get to see BC and locally, is that something that, you know, is is getting any kind of momentum, any kind of traction across your organization? Yeah, absolutely. I would say um, there's a number of studies that have been done across Canada. And time and time again, they come up and say that the biggest bottleneck to um, getting more housing online is municipalities um, for a multitude of reasons. Um, But one of them is, is listening to Um, people that's the NIMBYs and say, hey, I don't want to duplex as a neighbor. I don't want to fourplex as a neighbor. Um, But when you're in a dense location, that's the perfect fit for them. Um, And so it's a matter of giving the community input and allowing them to give input when you're doing an official community plan, um, when you're rezoning large areas of the community to say, okay, we need to have density here, like the downtown area, for example, um, the South Pandozi area, all of those areas are going to have higher density. And so once that density has been approved for that area, um, there won't be public hearings for absolutely every single thing that gets built. Um, Right now in communities across BC, if you want to build a fourplex, uh, you might have to go get city council approval. You have to get plans fully done. It might take you up to a year to even get documentation together to go to city council. Um, And then who knows from there um, whether it gets approved or not. And so... For something as simple as a fourplex, why is it taking, you know, two years to be able to say, yeah, you can go ahead and build the fourplex uh, in an area that's close to transit and close to parks and close to grocery stores um, and everything like that. So um, what EB is proposing is that the public hearing doesn't make sense at the end of the of the kind of planning process. Um, If you're 
proposing something, it should actually be done at the beginning. And so not uh, not waiting until you have everything done. The developers paid all their expenses as far as plans and specifications go. Um, and then saying, by the way, you can't build it. It does seem to be a bit backwards, for sure. And, and, and this, you know, we've had Ryan Smith on the program. We've had uh, Doug Gilchrist. And I know that they're paying attention to those things. Um, but it seems to be that's the policy. So they have to follow policy. Correct. Yeah. Yeah, until there's changes, I think it's the Local Government Act uh, that needs to be changed um, accordingly. So just a sidebar off of that, um, municipal election coming up, and, and I'm not saying any incumbents won't get in, and I'm not saying the mayor won't get back in, just, we're just talking about perhaps the next iteration for the council, and I know you're BC president, but you live and reside and work here. Um, what, what kind of uh, council, I guess... What kind of traits are you looking for from the people that you elect with your vote, whether it be mayor or council, let's just lump them together. What kind of traits, you know, what, what kinds of things uh, resonate with you as somebody who's, who's very active in, in the building sector? Um, for me, it's somebody that is, number one, willing to listen. I think that's always um, kind of the requirement for anyone in public service is they have to be able to sit down and listen to what your um, concerns are. If they won't listen to you, then what's the point of them serving for you? Um, so that's number one. Number two is they need to be educated. They need to spend the time reading the giant reports that I know were prepared for them. Um, but they really have to be all in. And if they're going to do it, they have to be involved and they have to be up to speed. Um, and they have to be willing to spend the time to understand things. Um, it's a lot of work being a city councillor. It's uh, certainly not a job for everybody. Um, but I think that's just, you know, getting knowledgeable about what is the pain points of our community is high up on my list for sure. It seems like a majority of their time is going to be spent on planning and variances and, and a lot of those issues that, that revolve around development. And, you know, you'd, Unless you have that background, I mean, a lot of that first year, you're probably straight hair straight back on a lot of that stuff. For sure. And there's things that go to city council, uh, like on building development. Part of it is form and character. So that means, you know, does the building look nice? Well, what qualifications do any city councillors have to say whether a building looks nice or not? Is that really the best use of city council's time um, in a meeting? And I know you've looked at, you know, some of the meetings over the years, and it's mostly approving housing. Um, when there's so many other things that our city councillors should be concerned about and should be looking at. So when you're thinking about, uh, you and I have had different conversations around DCCs. Now for people listening, and by the way, thank you for listening to the Rick and Friends show. Um, let's talk a little bit about what a DCC is, because I mean, a lot of people are probably not aware of what, what that is. And a lot of people building a house uh, find a, a, a lot of expenses are incurred and they, they're built in. So they're just, mm -hmm. and, and they may not even be aware of them. So can you kind of give us a, a little bit of soup to nuts here on DCCs? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and DCC stands for Development Cost Charges. Um, the, the idea around that is when you are building a subdivision, um, for example, you should be paying for the roads that go in there. You should be paying for the sewer that goes in there, the streetlights. Um, growth should be paying for growth. 
Um, that makes perfect sense. Um, where some of the issues lie um, within our community and many across BC is that DCCs are being used to fund uh, infrastructure deficits within a community. Um, so if you take something like the Parks DCC in Kelowna um, and you look at DeHart Park, um, which was purchased over 20 years ago, it's been in the parks plan for 20 years, um, that one has been assessed at 100% due to growth and zero benefiting factor to the neighborhood around it. Well, we both know if you go to the lower mission, how many people that live in the flats are gonna use that park, yet it is the upper mission new homes that are actually paying for that park to be built. And so there's lots of times where, you know, a 50 year old bridge is taken out and it's replaced with, you know, it's a two lane bridge and it's pulled out and a new two lane bridge is put in and it said, oh, well, that's 100% due to growth. But if it was due to growth, why wouldn't it be a four lane bridge? Why wouldn't the bridge be larger if it was 100% due to new growth? If we said there's so many more people in this area, we now need a four lane bridge, it would make sense that those new homes would pay for it. Um, but if we just have a ratty old bridge and it needs to get fixed and it needs to be replaced, that burden shouldn't be solely on those new homes being built. And so there's a lot of costs. I think Kelowna it ranges by what neighborhood you're building in. Um, some of them can get upwards of $68,000 per, um, we call it per door. Um, the Parks DCC in particular is charged per door. So if you're moving into a condo in Rutland that's new, you're paying over $15,000 for parks. If you're moving into a fancy house in a new subdivision, you're also paying fifteen grand. Um, it doesn't really seem fair to me to not have a sliding scale between those two. So let's talk about that uh, DeHart Park, for instance. So the people around there are more likely to use that park. Um, is there such a thing, and I'm asking this question, is there such a thing as uh, just a levy placed on the local neighborhoods for that particular park? I believe they could absolutely do that if they wanted to. Um, it's just not politically popular. That seems to be the thing. Like mm -hmm. if, if you have a park that, you know, again, in all likelihood is going to be used by the neighboring residents and in all likelihood, um, a levy placed upon those people would probably make the most sense. I mean, I guess from a government standpoint, it, it's interesting. I play a lot of hockey. doesn't look like it when I play, <laughs> but I do play a lot. Um, but a new rink, I know that only a certain percentage of the population is going to have an appetite for a one-time levy or a one-time tax on helping build that rink. Yet every hockey player is going, no, no, like we, we need this. So in, in your estimation, is it basically user-based uh, would be the fairest way to deal with this? Um, I think that's really difficult because it's really hard to say who's going to use the parks. And um, it's really hard to measure that. Um, other than in certain areas, they can track the parking around the park and they can see who, who parks there and estimate that those people are parking there to use the park. Um, so that one can be very, it's very difficult to track. It's not like a road where you can put... Uh, something down that counts the vehicles, very easy to track. Uh, same with the sewer system, water lines. Those are all very easy to track the usage on them. Um, parks is a little more difficult. Um, it's also tough because when this park CCC was calculated, um, they also don't take into account how often people use uh, school playgrounds. Um, and so you look at the DeHart Park area, there's Bellevue Creek Elementary, there's Dorothea Walker, there's Emma Climont. There's all those schools that surround that park. Um, though it's seen as that area having a deficit because those are not city-owned properties. Those are owned by the school district. 
Um, so the parks one is definitely more difficult. I think the fairest way to be would be to calculate it by square foot. Um, they do that in other municipalities around BC, so it's not like it's a brand new idea. Um, I just don't think it's fair that someone living in a condo pays 15 grand and someone living in a large single family house also pays 15 grand, especially as we're trying to get homes more affordable. And generally condos are, are a lower price point and more affordable for people to get into. So let's say I'm on council. It would make, uh, speaking of politically easier, I guess you could say, if I impose this DCC on parks, on new builds, I know I'm only upsetting a certain percentage of the population. Mm -hmm. Like, in, And these are people excited about building. So they're, okay, well, I'll, I'll accept a 15K. Um, and, and I guess from just a pure popularity standpoint, okay, so if I levy this across Kelowna, um, there's going to be way more pushback. But if I just target builders and, and new home builders, then you know, that's just less of a population that's less of a pushback. Is that how you, you see that then? Well, yeah, absolutely. It's hidden. Most people don't know. If you go on the city of Kelowna's website and you look at DCCs and you look at where the funding for infrastructure is in Kelowna, it's over 70% funded by DCCs. So every bridge, every road, every park, all the things that get built in Kelowna are mostly getting built on the backs of new housing. And everyone thinks like, oh, well, the developers should just pay it. Again, costs always get passed on. If cars are more expensive to build, guess who pays more for the cars? It's the person buying it. That's just the way it works. Um, in Kamloops, you the you actually pay for DCCs when you apply for a building permit. Um, that way, on a custom build, for example, the homeowner would know exactly what they're paying for, and it makes it way more public. Um, right now, the way DCCs are paid, um, developers pay them up front. They might pay them years ahead of when anyone is living there. So they pay them when they apply for the development permit. Uh, there might not be anyone living there for five years, but they're already paying for uh, the use of the sewer. They're already paying for the parks uh, and all those things. So it would make far more sense for those to be charged at the building permit phase. So uh, with the name, with the word developer, people just go, yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> no, they, they're absolutely on, uh, people yeah. love going, oh, well, just have the developer pay for it. Yeah. So what is what is the side, uh, I, I guess, what is the detriment from the developer standpoint, is it less people having an appetite? Is it because most people are sitting here going, we're in one of the fastest growing communities in Canada. Um, by all means, pass it along to the new people that want to move. Like what, what is the downside of, of that conversation? Because mm -hmm. you're, you know, because people are sitting there going, yeah, <laughs> load up the developer. <laughs> yeah, I want new stuff and I don't want to pay for yeah, it. Exactly. Absolutely. Um, yeah, it's, it's very interesting. And I think, you know, you go almost anywhere in Kelowna and nobody has staff. Nobody has staff anywhere. And so it's a problem that a lot of people have of like, okay, I go to a restaurant and, you know, there's empty tables, but I can't sit there because there's no server for me. Um, you know, there's no one to clean homes. There's no one, you know, if you want to go to tourist things, there is a lack of staff. There's a lack of staff everywhere. And so people need to be able to move here. Um, so at one hand, we have people that are, you know, oh, I want us to stop building. I want things to slow down. Um, but that's not possible if we want more people to move here because it's just going to become more expensive. So going off that, uh, when I look at that, you know, we do have a labor shortage. We have high housing costs. And, and the trickle-down effect that you uh, relayed is just we're going to run out of people because there's a, there's, a, <laughs> there's a lot of stuff that th there's 
well, people see it in Pearson Airport, especially if you don't have a baggage handler, (laughs) guess what happens? You have a bottleneck and it's the pig through the python. Like if one aspect doesn't go right, guess what? It just the ripple effect is Mm -hmm. felt throughout the whole chain. So you're saying, okay, if if you build in these DCCs, you're going to have this added cost. A lot of people that are buying their first home, perhaps, Mm -hmm. will not move into Kelowna because they can't afford to. And that just creates that chain reaction that we're talking about. Is that kind of... Absolutely. And and the DCCs, because of where they're paid in the process, the developer pays financing costs on it. Um, there's also, is because they're buried in the end price of the house, there's GST on it. Um, depending what the house sells for, there's probably property transfer tax on it. So that 15 grand can easily balloon up to 20 grand. Um, whereas if it was just charged in a different way, there would be no tax on it. Um, so really the, the federal government's getting, getting GST money out of these parks DCCs. So that's a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Like it it's, it's an, it's, it's an incredible amount of money actually yeah. when you start doing the math. Yeah. So is this something that is really the core root of why you're, you're doing what you're doing, which is taking on this position that you're helping advocate for builders, but you're also advocating for the people that are trying to get their, into their home. Absolutely. Like we ourselves are struggling with staff. There's a massive labor shortage within the construction industry. Um, We are short across Canada, 3.5 million homes, which is almost as much as we've built in the last 10 years. And we need that 3.5 million like now. And so how in the world are we supposed to build that much housing uh, if we don't have the staff to do so? How as a builder am I supposed to attract more, you know, carpenters to Kelowna if they have nowhere to live because it's unaffordable for them? And so we're basically saying like we understand a large portion of the housing crisis is due to costs of construction. And we're trying to just make everyone aware of that. Um, because like I say, we want people to live here too. I want my kids to be able to stay here. Um, I was born in Kelowna and my kids were born here and, you know, I left for a very, very short period of time and I hope, uh, I hope to never leave. So, um, but if costs keep rising, it's, there's not going to be an opportunity for them to stay. So let's talk a bit more about that inflationary pressures, because again, we hear about it through the construction industry, cost of, uh, lumber cost of, uh, finding the right person. We we hear about people moving job sites just based on everyone keeps paying a few more dollars here and there. And and it's it's really a, a cannibalistic <laughs> industry at times. <laughs> yeah. Um and, and is that felt across Canada? Because you would have more of a, a bird's eye view of that. Is that a Canada-wide issue, or is that just a BC issue? Absolutely. It is across Canada. Um, And when we open up immigration, um, yes, we absolutely need doctors and we absolutely need engineers, um, but we also need to accept uh, immigration that work in the construction industry. Um, Most, I think the average age of a plumber is like 55. Like they have number, they have the stats of how many people that work in our industry will be retiring in the next 10 years. Um, and it's staggering. It's, it's, you just look at it and you're like, we need to, you know, more than double, we need to, you know, build 10 times as many houses as we've been building. And we have, a, you know, you look at the future to the labor shortages we're going to have. Um, immigration is definitely the solution. In, in your eyes, have we reached uh, a point, and I'm thinking about the official community plan. Um, is there enough lots in, in Kelowna, in, in your estimation? Like if I let you and again, I know you're BC president, but let's just take it back home here for a second. If I allowed you 
to kind of do what you do, which is build homes so that we can actually bring the cost down a bit and, and just bring a lot of supply. Is there any areas or thought process as far as how to add that inventory to an official community plan, which would not, which is sustainable, which doesn't overbuild? Like, is is there an idea around that that you would utilize? Yeah, I would say I'm definitely concerned with the um, the official community plans, OCPs in all our areas around the Okanagan. Um, I know a lot of the estimations for our growth were done pre-COVID. Um, I think Kelowna grew, for, was it 14% uh, in the last year or dur- during COVID. Um, and we all know the secret's out. This is an amazing place to live. Um, people from Toronto come here, Barrie, Ontario, and they're like, this place is paradise. Why does it cost as much to live in Kelowna as it does Barrie, Ontario? Uh, I've never been there, but I'm sure it's definitely not as nice as here. So <laughs> maybe someone can uh, can fill us in on what Barrie, Ontario is like. Um, so I don't see us slowing down. And I think our numbers um, in all municipalities in, around Kelowna, uh, call it Lake Country, West Kelowna, Vernon, uh, I think they're very conservative, and I and I'm concerned that we have these official community plans that are supposed to be 20 years long. We're supposed to have infrastructure plans that match, um, and all of it is going to happen within 10 years. So, how do we build the infrastructure we need in a 20-year plan in 10 years if we need it? So, a couple of different things. I want to pick your brain here on Pierre Polyev came out and said uh, housing shortage. I got an idea. We have federal buildings, and some of them. Census is actually not using any of their buildings. We can reconvert those buildings into something that's, uh, you know, low-cost housing, work with local partners, and build this into your your communities. Um, first thoughts on on hearing that from potentially the conservative leader? Um, yeah, there's going to be, you know, a huge shift in how people work, definitely more out home working. Um, you know, we see that across many industries, uh, you know, not just the tech sector. Um, it's very expensive to conver- convert a commercial building uh, into a residential. Um, if you go in most offices, there's no plumbing. Um, there's no HVAC, which is probably the toughest one, how you vent your hood fans. Um, they can be quite costly to retrofit. Um, but at the end of the day, it's still less expensive than building. Um, construction costs are uh, wildly out of control at the moment. <laughs> Put it lightly. <laughs> uh, yeah, a sledgehammer there. Um, yeah. So, and, and that's just based on the fact that, you know, we have a skilled labor shortage. Uh, we have some supply chain issues. Uh, shall I keep going? Like, yeah, is that part of it? It is part of it. Um, Stats Canada actually tracks construction costs, and they've been tracking it since the since the nineties. You can go; on, it's not very difficult to go on their website. You can see it. The only time since nineteen ninety that construction costs have came down uh, was in two thousand eight, and they only came down a very very little bit. Um, so oftentimes I'm building for people and sometimes they're like, look, I, I don't think I'm going to build now. I think I'm going to cancel my project. I'm going to sit and wait for costs to come down. They never go down. Uh, we can see the data for what is that 30, 30 plus years, um, that it doesn't really ever go down. Um, it only increases. And if we look at how it's been increasing over the last 10 years, um, it is a bit out of control. Um, it's not only about labor shortages, um, definitely material costs, um, are factored in there. Um, but also the ever-increasing um, 
change of building codes. And so um, there's actually a lot of things in the building code that um, self-interest groups lobby for uh, to get in there. Um, you might see there's certain things in the electrical code that don't need to be in there. Um, recently, um, I believe it was the city of Winnipeg um, was against um, putting sprinklers in every home, um, so fire suppression. So um, there's been a pushback from different uh, different communities, different firefighting communities that every single family home should have sprinklers in them. Um, but there's data to support that that um, really is ineffective. They're very effective in multifamily homes, um, just really not necessarily in single family homes. So all the time, there's people that are trying to add things into the building code. Um, and every time you add things into the building code, it adds cost to build. Um, and so every time there's a code change, building becomes more expensive. Um, we are building homes now far better than we were in 2014 and 20, um, you know, 2008, uh, early in the 90s. We're building better homes. They're healthier homes. They're more efficient homes. Um, but that is part of why they are more expensive. So, of course, how do we do this? How do we get our heads wrapped around after what you just said in regards to adding costs? How do we create this this unicorn, which is low cost housing? Like how how does that even occur based on sky high construction costs, DCCs? Like we have a lot of stuff, code changes. We we have all these things that are that are building a recipe for. There's no way you can do low cost housing anywhere near Kelowna. Is mm -hmm. it is that kind of our reality now or? It is. And it's, you know, we live in one of the most desirable places in Canada, and that definitely comes with a cost. So I, I'm not a huge fan of saying, you know, 30% is the standard of income that everyone across Canada should be paying for housing. It doesn't make sense because if you live in urban areas, you don't necessarily have to own a vehicle. If you live downtown Vancouver, you work downtown Vancouver, you're not owning a vehicle. Uh, if you live in out in Nelson, you absolutely have to own a vehicle. Um, so there's so many other costs that go into your finances other than just, you know, taking a straight 30% to housing. Um, Kelowna's probably always going to be more than that. We're always going to be upwards of 50% um, of, of the average, you know, person's income going towards housing. Um, but also look at the place we live in. Um, we don't have to spend tens of thousands of dollars going on vacation because you can just walk down to the park and hang out at the beach and, you know, everything is here. The wineries are here. The golf is here. Um, you know, everything you might want out of a vacation you can do here. And so that definitely lowers your cost of living um, in that sense. So it's, it's interesting you say that because I couldn't live downtown Manhattan. Like I, I really couldn't. Mm -hmm. um, but a lot of people say, no, Kelowna should be for everyone to live in and, and should be there should be a threshold that we should all be able to live here. But it, it's starting to feel more like um, almost like San Francisco mm -hmm. or Silicon Valley, like in that area where you you literally it's it's very attractive to the world, not just for a small region and everyone wants to live here. So it's yep. it is a supply demand thing. Absolutely. And we have to understand that, you know, we can make different areas of Kelowna more affordable. We can make different buildings more affordable. Um, but the only way to get, um, you know, something down to 30% of someone making minimum wage is going to be with uh, government subsidized housing. Um, most people that make minimum wage, uh, unless they're on some sort of disability, um, they're probably younger. They've probably got roommates. They're probably not looking to 
own their own, you know, one bedroom studio uh, making minimum wage. Uh, it's just not really realistic. So um, just different options of housing. In Europe, it's very common to live with your parents. It's very common to live with your grandparents. North America is one of the only places in the world where everyone needs to have their own home. Um, and so I think the pandemic is starting to shift it. The pandemic and the cost of housing is, you know what, maybe our parents should live with us instead of in a care home because uh, they're very expensive and maybe didn't get the best care. Um, you know, your teenagers are going to live with you longer. Your, you know, kids in their early 20s having kids are going to live with you longer. Um, so the intergenerational living is something that I think is going to be a big uh, difference maker. And I know as a builder, I'm already seeing it. Um, we're putting lots of suites in homes and the suites aren't for Airbnbs. The suites are for, you know, aging parents or, you know, maybe the kids are in the suite and the parents are upstairs and, you know, they've pooled their money together to live here. Um, so I think that's something that's a big opportunity as well. I, I d had no idea that your brother Dustin was such a trendsetter. <laughs> Right? Yeah, mom can't get rid of him. <laughs> uh, but it's true. It's a good example of, of uh, you know, someone who's able to take care of the yard and all that type of stuff because my mom isn't able to do it. So um, as much as I make fun of my brother for still living at home, uh, it actually does make a lot of sense. <laughs> so this is a stat, and I don't, I don't know the answer. You probably do. How many home builders do we have roughly – uh, range in Kelowna right now? Um, Ooh, that's a hard question. Um, residential builders need to have a license to build. Um, your license you'll have to have for, um, at least 10 years because you have to warranty, um, the structure that you build. And so there's tons of people that have their license still, but are inactive. Um, I would guess it would be between three and 400, um, but there's also so many that have their license in Vancouver or Calgary that build here as well. Oh, okay. So it's very hard to track. And, and what is uh, involved with that warranty? Because, you know, many people wouldn't even know what that warranty looks like. Yeah. So when you build a new home, um, you get a what they call 2510 uh, warranty. There's actually a one year warranty. So it's kind of a 12510. Um, the first year is kind of your bumper to bumper. Um, you know, if a cabinet door falls off, if, you know, your toilet's you know, something happened with your toilet, um, that's all within your first year, um, any of those type of deficiencies. Um, second year is mechanical equipment. So that would be your furnace, your AC, um, plumbing valves that might be in your shower. If a valve in your shower leaks, um, that would be covered. Um, five years is on the envelope. So basically what wraps the exterior of the house. So that would be like your roof's not going to leak, your windows aren't going to leak, um, you know, stucco's not going to be falling off, um, all that type of stuff. Um, and then the 10 year is structural. So that's, you know, if there's massive shifts in the, in the build, maybe your concrete, your foundation, your, uh, concrete's cracking or any, anything structural in the house, um, is covered within the 10 year. It's almost like you were a home builder at one time. <laughs> right. <laughs> so you'd be able to, to give listeners as well as myself, some idea of some of the innovations in the last few years that, that you're seeing or any kind of trends uh, when it comes to home building for residential, you know, because I mean, tastes change, uh, colors change, trends change, but what, what kinds of things are you seeing as far as a trend that's moving forward that people just can't seem to live about? Like, like I'm thinking of like the slab above the, the driveway thing for the theater room and like that became a thing. Yes. 
What what other kinds of things? The sweets is another one that you yeah, mentioned. Lots of sweets. Any anything else that you see as kind of a, a new building trend that's emerging? Um, well, we always encourage people to consider aging in place. Um, and so consider, you know, curbless curbless showers, um, things that, you know, wider hallways, bigger doors. What if you were building a new home and what if you ended up in a wheelchair? Even if you're young, what if you got in a car accident and you ended up in a wheelchair? Um, can you get into your front door? Does it have steps into it? Um, you know, we always try as hard as we can to not have any steps into the front door. You can drive around and see lots of houses that have one or two steps that probably didn't need to. Um, and so that's something that we always consider. Um, you know, I even know my dad when he had cancer, there was things in his home that um, weren't as functional um, uh, had we kind of planned for it and thought for it. So, um, you know, I broke my ankle in May and there's stairs all over my house. And so um, that's a big one to consider. Um, there's different things that we don't do anymore, like built-in vacuums are very rare. Um, I kind of relate them to the fax machine. It's like, who's fax? Who's faxing anymore? The government and my mom, that's about it. <laughs> and so um, in the built-in vacuums, unless you're doing a hide-a-hose system, which is completely in the wall, um, those can be really functional uh, in a high-end house. But really, who wants to lug around a massive vacuum? Um, not, there's really no benefit to it. Um, you can buy cheaper vacuums. You can buy Dyson vacuums and put one on each floor for the price of a built-in vac. So um, there's things like that that we don't do much anymore. Um, lots of electric fireplaces um, because you can use them all year, all year long. Um, you can have them on in the summer, which is really nice. They're also significantly cheaper, um, and they've come a long way. They're not really the Canadian Tire special anymore. Um, <laughs> some of them are, are actually quite nice, um, and you can turn heat on too if you want. Uh, you want to have heat on, but instead of staring at a big black hole, uh, the majority of the time, where you turn on your fireplace, it gets too hot too quickly. Um, the electric ones are nice because you can use them all the time. Um, as far as colors and that stuff goes, um, lots of natural. Um, we're finally done with the gray on gray on gray on gray on gray that we did for, I don't know, like 15 years, the longest trend ever, I think. Um, definitely a lot of natural colors. White is always in. White is always popular. It's always timeless. Um, you know, 90% of kitchens are white still, um, and that's really never going to change. Um, and so, yeah, just getting back to a little more taupes, a little more of the sandy colors, um, which is really fitting here. Um, I found it strange the gray trend lasted so long because it's so dreary in the winter here. And I find so much gray. You walk into a gray house and you're like, oh, my gosh, so much gray. <laughs> Anyone <laughs> listening who has a gray house right now, <laughs> I apologize. <laughs> now, what about uh, technology, though, like as far as smart systems or solar panels and mm -hmm. all that other stuff is that are you seeing a lot more emerging for that absolutely um solar panels are definitely becoming more popular um they're yeah it, it, more subdivisions are allowing them it used to be you know lots of neighborhoods had like oh i don't want my neighbor to have solar panels because they're ugly um but some people now are like actually you know solar panels can be really beautiful and if you consider you know someone's saving the environment by putting them up there it can be something you enjoy rather than complaining when you drive by um, so yeah, solar panels, um, heat recovery ventilators, uh, just upgraded furnaces, fa fancy words for upgraded furnaces and, and heat pumps and all that kind of stuff that not only make your house more energy efficient, but they make it more comfortable to live in. Um, you know, if you've ever gone in a basement that's freezing cold, um, you know, you can, you know, it's just nice to have rooms, you know, a climate temperature. 
um, lots of ICF foundations and, and yeah, all sorts of stuff that kind of combine that energy efficiency with just overall health and comfort. You were just chatting about a stat, which was BC and Ontario, and I didn't catch the last part of that. BC and Ontario blank. So just carry on with that. Yeah. Uh, of the 3.5 uh, additional housing units that are needed, two thirds of those are in, in, in Ontario and BC. So probably two of the fastest growing provinces in Canada. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so is that's obviously the biggest challenge for the construction industry is we're already behind the eight ball. We're behind. Um, yeah, we have a severe ho housing deficit. I mean, they did all these studies on demand issues. They thought, hey, the cost of housing and the, and the problem is money laundering. Well, it turns out it's not money laundering. Uh, you know, oh, it's foreign buyers. Well, it turns out it's not really about foreign buyers. Um, and the more studies that are done on the demand side, the more, you know, they try to come up with more policies. And at the end of the day, we just do not have enough supply. Um, and CMHC, they're like one of the first sentences in the executive summary of their report is we do not need any more reports like this is the report to end all reports that we need more homes we need more homes built now we have to build them way quicker and it's the municipality's fault <laughs> that's the executive summary <laughs> so and, and and have interest rates kind of slowed things down a bit because i know that that was you know in a full percentage uh is a big deal yeah, I think the the interest rates are more just, I think, scaring people more than anything. I think the interest rates still aren't as high as they were before COVID. Um, obviously, homes are a lot more expensive now. And so, you know, the amount you qualify. Um, in my opinion, the interest rates aren't the problem. I believe our mortgage laws are extremely outdated and they need a complete overhaul. Um, things like the stress test, um, if people take a lower rate in a variable mortgage, they qualify for more than if they took a slightly higher rate in a five-year fixed mortgage, but a variable rate is it could go up, and so it's riskier. And so why are we handcuffing buyers to say, okay, you have to take the lower rate, which is invariable, but you might end up paying more two years from now anyways. So That seems counterproductive. It, uh, it does, and there's a number of things that are wrong with the stress test, and, and the mortgage laws honestly really benefit people that have wealthy parents and wealthy grandparents. So if, if you have an inheritance that you can use as a down payment, then congratulations, you've won. Um, but for other people that don't have that, that aren't as fortunate to have you know money coming in from parents and grandparents, um, they're really locked out. And how many people can afford, uh, you know, they're paying $2,000 a month in rent. Um, they can afford a $1,600 a month mortgage. They just don't have the down payment. So it seems like we have a, a little bit of a, a circle. <laughs> like, I mean, and it, and if you grab the, the variable rate and it will shoot up, obviously that, that is stressful. Uh, in the U.S., you have 25-year rates, like in, in mm -hmm. the U.S., you actually have longer term rates, which grabs, which creates more stability in the marketplace. But in Canada, that's less, that's not really a trend. You can't really get by with that. No, and you can. They also have longer um, loan rates. I think our loan rates, they used to be at 35 years. I think they're down to 30 or, or 25 now. So I apologize, I'm not a mortgage broker. But what's wrong with a 40-year mortgage, it, especially if you're someone who's you know 30 or 25? Um, if the average life expectancy is is 80 plus, why can't a 30-year-old have a 40-year mortgage? Um, and so that would make a huge difference. Um, 
And if they act, if you actually look at the stats of people that default on their mortgages the least are actually millennials. They're actually the younger generation. Um, the ones that default the most are uh, the boomers, 60, 60 plus. And so it doesn't make sense to continue to lock out that bottom uh, kind of the younger demographic when they're actually the most reliable because they're still working. So as uh, Presidente of the Home Builders of Association of BC, um, what, what's your what's your next year look like? Like what are you what are you hoping to achieve with your tenure? Well, we're kind of waiting now until um, EB is named leader. Um, there's not as much that we can do uh, with the government. It's kind of on pause until the NDP announce uh, who their next leader is. Um, but from there, it'll be working very closely with him and his office uh, on all housing policies. Um, we believe that he's still going to have, um, you know, a heavy interest in housing. Obviously, it's one of the you know number one issues for a lot of Canadians is housing. Um, and so it's a file that he's been working on for the last couple of years, and he's not going to just, you know, walk away and say it's someone else's thing now. Um, so we know he's going to be very involved in it. So um, just looking forward to, um, you know, working with that office more. Is he sitting in on any UDI uh, meetings? I'm not sure. I don't know if he meets with UDI. Oh, he should. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Well, it's a question it's, for UDI. <laughs> but but it, but it's a it's a good way for him to I guess understand uh, all the complexities in regards to building and development. I Absolutely. Mean. And and you know the concerns of UDI are very different um than CHBAs. Um we generally represent uh, a much smaller company. Our builders on average build 3 to 5 homes a year. Um, and have around 10 employees. Um, and so there are a lot of small businesses, um, which are kind of the, you know, the wheel of, uh, of our economy uh, in BC. So it's, it's, uh, we're, we feel like we're a very important part. Okay, so we, we got to enjoy the wonderful Cassidy DeVere. Uh, thanks so much for sharing your insight. And, and I mean, I learned quite a bit. And I think, you know what, I, I think you should take a run at some other offices too. <laughs> You know, maybe one day when my kids are out of high school. <laughs> well, you got an extra spare, what, 45 minutes a day or yeah, something? Right. That's all it takes to read a 300 page report. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks so much for coming in to uh, Rick and Friends show and we'll have you back on. Thanks, Rick.